Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Some of y'all know that uh, we have had the pleasure of um, hiring a director uh, to um, start a, a Christian fellowship amongst medical students here in uh, the Texas Medical Center for Baylor uh, College of Medicine or UT McGovern or the uh, uh, University of Houston. And uh, Will McKee is uh, who we've hired to do that. And he this is his first Sunday with us. And I figured um, just to kind of throw him in the deep end, I was going to give him Genesis 5. And he was going to preach for us on it. Uh, so that we are actually um, picking back up a sermon series that we were in uh, in, the, in the fall, which was going through Genesis 1 through 11, called The Origin Story. Um, and, uh, and Will is going to be picking back up for us, and we're so glad to have him here. We're so glad uh, to have him help us just... Y'all, y'all, if you turn to the Bible, you'll, you'll see why I'm making a joke about what Genesis 5 is. Uh, he's gonna, it, it, we're just so glad to have him, and we'll come on up and uh, read and preach for us. We're glad to have you, man. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, uh, church. It's good to be with y'all. Uh, it is a joy to be looking at God's Word um, Regardless of what chapter or what verses they are, uh, it's, it is always uh, a joy to be that. And yet, yes, it was uh, true. I was um, offered this position and uh, said I could uh, preach. It would be a good way for me to introduce myself. Uh, and so I, I did. I mean, he, Taylor, as, as you know, he's a very gracious man and was you know, willing to. I'm going to take this off. It's a little warm up here. Um, uh, gracious and would, you know, I, if I said no, I'm sure he would have, you know, we would have worked out something, but uh, it is a joy to preach. It's a joy to prepare and uh, steep yourself in in God's word. Uh, but I also, I, I wanted to do it to show as an opportunity that, uh, just to show a little bit of who I am, that ultimately I'm, I'm here to serve um, and do what's best for, for God's people, for the church, and ultimately for uh, the Lord, and if that means preaching on my first Sunday here through Genesis five, uh, I, I want to do that and show you, um, and show that that's um, I think that's what life life is about. I love uh, Philippians two as it describes Jesus. He emptied himself um, so that he could become a servant, uh, and so I hope that you get to see that. I hope for the the many years uh, I'll, I'll uh, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, be here. Um, I get to show you that, and we can all look uh, closer and closer at Jesus um, each and every day. Uh, but as we look at Genesis 5, and it's right at the front of your uh, Bibles there, um, there's actually, I think there's a lot of beauty in describing how uh, life works and flows um, as we look at this passage. So I'm going to read from Genesis 5. Uh, and for, um, forgive me, I am going to skip around a little bit, but I'll let you know um, where I skip. It's, it's, uh, it's a little repetitive, so I'll uh, let you know where that is. But this is uh, starting... Uh, verse 1 of Genesis 5. Uh, and sorry for the slide. I will say where I'm going, so hopefully we can keep up if it's up there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, 
and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And we'll skip down to uh, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then skipping down to verse 28. When Lamech had, 100, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived and he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and how it shows us what uh, life looks like. I pray that we would see uh, you deeper in your love for us uh, in this message today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I am a, I'm a seminary student, and I'm uh, learning a lot about God's Word and have learned a little bit about genealogies, still learning a lot. But one of the things I've learned is it's often these genealogies, like this chapter 5, are often a great way for authors to quickly flow through um, multiple people in time really quickly, usually to connect people to other people or events, um, and it helps them flow quickly. I mean, just by a matter of comparison... The first three chapters, and even into chapter four of Genesis, almost four full chapters cover just two generations, and in one chapter, we've covered ten and hundreds of years. And so as I thought about this, this flow and how quickly this goes, uh, I have that mental picture of like a, like a lazy river or uh, river rapid streams and thinking about flow. Um, and so I, I'd love for you, I'd encourage you to think of that picture, think of the word flow as we're going through this text today. And we think about specifically if we're in the flow of that water, uh, what's our role? What do we do as the water is flowing? And what causes the flow? Uh, and so uh, we'll get into this text. Um, I'll briefly say before we really dive in, there's a lot of questions that can come up with a passage like this. Like, did they really live that long? What really happened to Enoch? Um, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of compelling uh, theories about a lot of these things. Uh, ultimately, I'll say for um, the lives of the people and how long they lived, I think the, uh, the, the point for what we're going to be talking about today uh, to focus on is that these people uh, lived ordinary, burden-filled lives, like many of us do. It would uh, look very similar to us in a lot of ways. And then as for Enoch... Um, we know that he, was, uh, he walked with God. In Hebrews, it says he's uh, to be commended for his faith. That's why God favored him. And so he's a man that walked with God. Um, and I'm sure there's other questions, and I uh, would love his, 
I'm here now. We can take some time and uh, address those if, if you want. But I think if we can set most of those questions aside and focus on the overall picture that I think this passage is telling us, and I think the big idea is this, that because all of life flows through God's plan, by his purposes, and for his glory, we must follow the flow. So because all of life flows through God's plan, by his purposes, and for his glory, we must follow the flow. So let's start by taking a look at what uh, God's plan looks like. So I got my big map here. There we go. Oh, awesome there. So we've got, uh, starting in uh, verse uh, 3, we, uh, and then again in verse 6 as well, we really start to get that repeated phrase. Uh, it happens, uh, ten, it's for 10 generations. We see a name, uh, how, how old they were, additional years after the birth of the son, other children, the total years they lived, and they died. And I think about all these generations and the years overlapping. I did some math, and you, Adam would have lived when Methuselah, at verse 25, was born. And so all of these families were just living ordinary life for, for many, many years. It, it made me call, it call to mind the uh, passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, um, verse 11, where it says, "...to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands." Just really, the, the simple life is what these people were living. Ordinary, simple lives, uh, much like you and me. What's, very, what's exciting about that? Uh, where's, where's the glory? Where's the joy in that? Uh, and as I was thinking about this, I, I thought of uh, one of my favorite movies. Is, it's called About Time. Uh, now, I've heard that if you recommend any movie or book from behind a pulpit, it's like an automatic uh, condoning of it, like, yes, you should watch it. I'm not saying that. It's not for everybody. It is rated R. Um, uh, but I think the, the premise is really helpful in how they look at life in the movie. This, the main character is a time traveler, uh, and he goes back and he lives each day. He ends up repeating each day over again as if he deliberately came back to that day um, just to really get the full meaning of life. But then he, his final lesson that he learns at the end um, I think is, there's really, it's really poignant. He says, the truth is, I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just try to live each day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day to enjoy it as if it was the full, final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. How can he, how can he say that? How can he notice that this ordinary life, there's something extraordinary about it? Well, it actually starts in our passage here in verses 1 and 2. The reason we can say it's extraordinary is because man was made in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. Furthermore, we get to verse 3, and Adam gets to continue this. It's Notice it's the one time it's actually different. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. He gets to continue the image of God, and there's a, there's a hope that through this continual line... Um, through this continual line of God's family, there's a hope that uh, the image of God will continue to be uh, throughout humanity. In short, uh, wherever there are image bearers, there's something good because God created us good. Through this line of Seth here, there's hope that humanity will continue to bear God's image. And so uh, 
And that is good. It is a good thing, especially in light of the world uh, that has come about because of Genesis 3 and the fall of sin. Anything uh, created good is extraordinary. And uh, I also look at this passage. I see that uh, it is ordinary life. Uh, God is choosing to work his plan through ordinary, extraordinary life because of image bearers. It's also through family. Family is a part of his plan. We can think of family in a couple ways. Uh, you know, we can think of our, our nuclear families, and I think of a you know, passage like Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that they will go so that when they're older, they'll always walk in it. Um, or even Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, which is just after, um, actually verse 5 starts with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he says this, And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So there's there's importance to the family and how God will work through families. Uh, But there's also, because we be God's people, we are part of God's greater extended family. We, the church, gets to be uh, God's family. Uh, And we can imagine the first hearers of this passage would have been the Israelites in the Exodus. They're in the wilderness, uh, and they would have just heard the line of Cain in chapter 4, juxtaposed with this line in chapter 5, the line of Seth. So we've got the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And Seth traces the line of, from the founder of humanity, Adam, through the re-founder of humanity, uh, Noah, who comes through the flood. So they would have seen, they would have known, oh yes, I recall these names. I've heard these tales growing up. This is life. These are my great-grandparents. To Cain's line, which starts with a murderer, Cain himself, and ends with Lamech, a murderer as well. Speaking of Lamech, by the way, and these are different Lamechs than the one in Seth's line, Cain's Lamech is a bigamist, violent murderer, and he's the seventh in line. Our seventh in line is Enoch, who walked with God. So there's hope. There's, there's this great contrast. You hear Lamech in the seventh versus Enoch in the seventh as one who walks with God. And this whole line, Seth's line, is characterized by long years of life and includes the line that survives the flood. Noah and his sons are mentioned right at the very end. Whereas Cain's line, in the chapter four, just before, is characterized by city builders, smiths, musicians, these culture makers that do great things but none of them survived the flood. It calls to mind uh, the passage in James 4, 13, where he's, uh, 14, where he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's Cain's line. They were a mist that appeared for a time. They did many great things. But they were gone. They did not survive the flood. There was no life in them. They were not God's chosen family. They were not his people. And so uh, what do we make of this plan that God works through ordinary life and his, uh, and his people? We can rest. That we, uh, we can rest in that fact that we are his image bearers. We can rest that this is his plan for us. But why would he do this? Why would he do this plan? And so this is where we get to the purpose. Why would he do this? Uh, And I think it's ultimately he would work through ordinary life and work through his family 
uh, to show his character that we would follow it. Like that's the purpose, to show us his character. If his plan is characterized by the ordinary life and working through families, his purpose flows through his character, his humility, and his relationalness. I had to kind of make up a word there to, um, maybe someone could uh, help me with that later, but um, it, his humility and his relationalness. So his humility, I love that this is the, the first Sunday in Epiphany, and we celebrate how Jesus Christ was revealed to us, the Messiah. And I, I love this great quote from uh, Echoes of Eden, the book by Jerem Bars. It says, Who can imagine a more remarkable affirmation of the physical than this, that the everlasting God entered our world and joined the human race? Not only are we image bearers, but Christ, Jesus, God, came down uh, to be a human himself. Looking back in our pa- passage... Lamech says in verse 24, and he talks about, uh, or sorry, I say 24, 29, uh, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This life here on earth is not perfect. It's burden-filled. It's really hard. But God would come down to that? What kind of God would do that? Sure, to affirm the physical, but, but why would he do that? What is he trying to show? And I think in his character, he is showing um, that he's a humble one, ready to serve. And I love uh, Philippians 2. I love this passage uh, as it describes who God is. This is Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Um, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men. And this is the first part of verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus humbled himself to be a servant. Uh, It calls to mind, I love the allegory of long spoons, if you've heard of it. Uh, There's uh, the idea of the story is that there's two identical rooms, and uh, there's a pot of stew in the middle, and people sitting around it, uh, and they all have these really long spoons attached to their arm. And one room is really sad and looking very hungry, and one room is fat and happy and having a good time. The rooms are set up the same, but what was the difference? Well, the room that was sad, all the people, the spoons are just too long for you to be able to feed yourselves. They were sad and miserable as they were trying to feed themselves. The room that was happy were using their long spoons to feed and serve each other, and they were really happy. Uh, and so I think uh, as I love that picture, uh, I, th- I think it helps us uh, see the humility of Christ as he is a servant. Um, as it seeks to serve others, uh, we can seek to serve others as well. That's part of the reason why God's plan flows through ordinary life, to show us the humility in his character that we may serve others. And in serving others, we also begin to build relationships and show the relational side of God's character in his family. We were made to be relational. In Genesis 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And this makes sense because God is in himself a relationship, the triune God. You know, interestingly enough, if you look, if you haven't noticed in Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The triune God in himself is a relationship. And so for us to properly reflect his character, we too were made to be in relationship. To reflect him, it is not good for us to be alone. 
And interestingly enough, throughout the Bible, the character, the humble servant, is connected often with being in relationship. We can look back at Philippians 2, for instance, and a few verses before um, the verses I talk about him emptying himself to take the form of a servant. Paul tells the people of Philippians to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. The passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, where I uh, used that earlier to talk about living quietly and working with your hands. Just before then, how are you supposed to work with your hands and work the simple life? Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Love and being in full accord is what characterizes us as we humbly serve each other. It's a call for unity. I think of John and uh, John seventeen eleven. Uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, Lord, may they be one as we are one. So, being truly relational for us then means living in true love and unity with God and with others. So if we are to reflect his character as he works through ordinary life and through families, we are to be humbly serving each other, building relationships and unity within God's family. How do we build this unity? How do we know about the unity in God's family? I think part of it is in worship. I think it's really great that here today in our worship service, Uh, We affirmed our faith with the Apostles' Creed, which the church has been saying for over a thousand years. You know, I think about the the, uh, miracle of Pentecost, everyone being able to hear the good news in their own tongue. Well, every Sunday around the world, churches are saying the Apostles' Creed in their own languages. I mean, how beautiful is that? What kind of great unity there is as well? The same with the Lord's Prayer. If we say the Lord's Prayer, those are the very words Jesus taught his disciples, and we get to say those same words. What a great uh, example of to show unity in our love for the church uh, together. And so we've seen so far that God's uh, plan, or God's, the, all of life flows through God's plan, which is to work through ordinary lives and through families. And his purpose, he does this to show his humility and his relationalness. There's that made-up word again. Um, that we may walk in his character. But how do we do this? How can we um, walk in his character? And uh, it ends with, it's because of his glory. Because of his glory. That's what it's all for, and ultimately our job is to behold it, to behold his glory. By the way, whenever we hear the word behold uh, in the Bible, it usually means like, hey, this something really good is coming. Pay attention to this. This is going to be uh, really good. Uh, and indeed, it is, because we are called to behold the, behold the glory of Christ. Christ lived the ordinary, humble life perfectly. We can see pictures of what this looked like uh, throughout Scripture. I love uh, starting Colossians 1 here, he, uh, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in a man who came to earth. There's a real human who got to, who has all the fullness of God in him. You know, Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can you imagine hearing the Sermon on the Mount? The, word, the words of Jesus are the same words of power that uphold the universe. Oh, I think about the, the, the transfiguration account in the Gospels and how the three disciples that were there um, as Jesus is being made into this glorified image uh, and Peter uh, makes up something about doing tents here. And Mark 9, verse 6 tells us why he says what he says. It seems kind of random. It says he ultimately, because he did not know what to say, because he was scared. The glory of God is so powerful, it's almost even scary, it's great. Um, And this was humanity in all of its glory, in Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He lived. He lived for 30 years doing an ordinary life, then started his ministry years of serving God's people, living in perfect love with God and others. And then what did he do? He died. Just like the people in... The passage here in Genesis 5, he tasted death too. We see it in verse 5, Adam dies, Seth dies in verse 8, Enosh dies in 11, Kenan dies in verse 14, and so on and so on. Everybody here besides Enoch, all of them touched death. And Jesus died too. But his death was also unlike their death because he died for even more than that. These men uh, did not die for a great a great reason apart. They just died because of the fall of humanity and for sin. But here in Romans 5, we hear a little bit why uh, Jesus died. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. For us sinners, but he did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, so that, as it says in Hebrews 7, he lives to intercede for us. He continues his work, even after his life here on, on earth, he continues his work on the throne and sent his spirit to work powerfully in us, in our ordinary, everyday lives. See, so you can look back at this. Uh, family line here and see that Jesus is better. Jesus did all of this regular life that these people did better. We can look at Enoch, the best one, their seventh in line, who walked with God and see Jesus, not only did he walk with God, he was and is God. We think about Lamech, who's prophesying this promise uh, that uh, the Lord uh, would relieve us from this painful toil of our hands and our work. Jesus provides an even better rest Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, Noah's name means rest. Jesus provides an even better rest from the slavery of sin. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't get to behold God's glory without the work of Jesus. And so thanks be to God for his great and glorious work that we, we get to behold. We get to see what it is. And so what does that look like in the end? What does our end look like? Well, if there's, uh, if there's an element of how Jesus has worked through the ordinary life, what does God's family then get to do? If he's relational, what does our family get to do? And we get to be with him forever in glory. God's family gets to live in perfect relationship with him because of Jesus. 
In Revelation 21, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And I love when we think about um, the end and we think about God making all things new and our redemptive work in the world. I think those are really great things to focus on when we hear about uh, the end glory. But I also don't want us to miss uh, that the dwelling place of God is with man. And the point is to be with Jesus. If you think about the tabernacle, the tabernacle was there so that God could be with man. And the temple was there that God could be with man. But yet it also says in scripture that the heavens are his home and the, his, the earth is his footstool. So how can he properly be with us? Well, that's our end. The end of glory is the dwelling place of God being with man. We get to be with him in glory forever. We do live in a place, and the place is important, but being with him, as his, we are his image bearers, and we get to be with him in perfect uh, relationship. So how do we apply all this? If this is the flow, this has been the flow of life, that God has a plan to work through our ordinary lives, through his family, he does that to show his characters, his humility, and how he is relational. And ulti- the ultimate figure of that is Christ, that we get to live with him in glory. So that's the flow of the plan. What do we do with that? Well, I hope as I uh, get to spend more time with you, I can think of more really specific, practical ways uh, to apply this. But I think broadly speaking, the way we can apply this is that we get to rest. We get to rest in this flow, the flow of life that flows through Christ. Now, I love the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Uh, And the first stanza goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The flow of life, that the plan of life was for us to live under the flow of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Now, what do we do with that? A stanza four of that same hymn has a great response for us. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supplied, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love gets to be the theme of our life until we die. So as we live each day, we can behold our future glory, that we get to be in perfect relationship with God because of Christ's work who lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve. He lived the perfect, humble, serving life in perfect relationship with God and others so that we, as God's chosen people, could strive to live like that in our extraordinary, ordinary lives. We get to do all this because of Christ. So knowing, know and rest that the flow of life, the plan of life flows through Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. And as we live each day, we can live in that hope and that love. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that uh, you work and you, you live and you work through our everyday lives, drawing us closer to you. But that even more than that, the flow of life flows through Jesus uh, that we can, be, we can live forever and be in perfect relationship with you because of what Jesus has done. So we thank you for that. I pray that as we uh, go about our days uh, this uh, next year, that we would live and rest in that flow, 
the flow of your love for us shown on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.